Today's podcast is sponsored by Free Trade, the UK commission-free investing platform. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Excitement about artificial intelligence is powering a new bull market. Last week, NVIDIA smashed earnings expectations, catapulting the company towards a $2 trillion valuation and lifting stocks globally. I want to know whether NVIDIA's stellar growth is sustainable and if AI will really change the world. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is the rule of 40? All right, let's get into it. So this week, Roman, for once, I'm wondering... Am I talking to the wrong person? Because from what I understand, in your household, someone has made quite a lot of money holding NVIDIA stock. And it's not you. That's right. And it's a, it's a sore point. What can I say? She's got a fund portfolio. This is Laura, my partner. And she's made pretty good money on it. And every time we talk about fund portfolios, she just asks me how much fun I'm having. She's having a lot more. So what was this? Some kind of visionary call? Well, she says she uses a technique called Laura's Waters, which involves some kind of intuition. Well, it certainly seems to work. So we've talked about launching a hedge fund, you know, Laura's Waters hedge fund, but I don't know if there'll be many takers. I mean, the trouble is with these AI waters is they could be shark infested going forward. (laughs) That's what I warned her, but, you know, she wouldn't listen. So let's start with NVIDIA then, because this is a crazy story, really, isn't it? The growth of this company has been unbelievable. People often talk about a pick and shovels play in investing, don't they? Where you get this new trend and the people that really make money are the ones that sell the underlying hardware. So the classic example is when you've got a gold rush, the one thing you shouldn't do is go out and prospect for gold (laughs) because there you're just playing a lottery, right? Some people will get rich, but most won't. What you want to be is the person selling the picks and selling the shovels. And in this case, it's NVIDIA. Yeah, I think that's one of the ways you can get exposure to AI. And it's certainly the one that most people are choosing at the moment. It's a difficult thing to invest in. That's the weird thing about it, because it's been used by various large mega cap companies. But it's such a small part of their overall earnings. It's quite an indirect play. So this is one way you can get exposure to it, to the rise of AI is by NVIDIA. So NVIDIA currently controls around 80% of the high-end AI chip market. So that's, um, that's close to a monopoly, really. And it really has been lucky. It was at exactly the right place at exactly the right time. It's funny because they started off with just gaming boards. I remember for many years, because I used Linux, which is like a weird operating system, but NVIDIA's boards would work on Linux. So that's why I first grew aware of it many, many years ago. And it's always been great for gaming boards, you know. But of course, if you want fast 3D graphics, essentially you're just multiplying large matrices together in real time. That's what these very rapidly rendered game engines are. And it turns out that AI is exactly the same thing. So if you take one of these graphic processor units, a GPU, rather than a CPU, which is just doing everything on your computer, you can make a dedicated system to perform these calculations very rapidly. And it's not just this application, it's used for other things. For example, if you're mining cryptocurrency, you can use one of these graphics cards to do it. That's the thing. You said they've been lucky, which I don't know, is maybe underselling it. I mean, they've been incredible in terms of R&D, but they have been at the right place at the right time consistently, right? They jumped on the gaming bandwagon, then crypto came along and 
GPU prices went up massively as everyone was trying to get their hands on them to mine Bitcoin. And then in the last couple of years, yeah, AI. So you've got massive capex spending from all the big technology companies just desperately trying to get their hands on these chips so they can train their AI models. And I think it's a clever place to be because there are lots of applications that require lots of calculation. And this is just the latest instantiation of that. Who knows what will be next? Some kind of design for nanotechnology, whatever. We need to calculate things quickly. And computation is something that we're going to require more of whatever the application. So I think it's pretty smart, as you say, that they were in this space. But I think it was an element of luck. And it's an interesting company because we call them a chip maker, but they don't actually manufacture the chips. They're what's called a fabulous chip maker. They focus on the chip design and the development, and then they outsource the manufacturing to third parties. For example, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC. Yeah, that's an incredible company. It's based in Taiwan, and they are making some factories in the US, I believe they're trying to, because of course, one thing that's really got people worried at the moment is that there's going to be an invasion of Taiwan by China. If that happens, then that puts these fabs potentially at risk. I mean, presumably, they'd still allow them to manufacture and export. Be crazy not to. So if your source of chips is TSMC, then you're probably worried about your supply chain. And I think that NVIDIA is in some discussions with other companies that have fabrication plants, fabs, in order to see if it can diversify its supply chain. The thing about being a fabless chip maker is that you're able to run on really high margins, aren't you? Because manufacturing often is a low margin business. It's commodified. Whereas NVIDIA sits in this nice place where it owns a lot of intellectual property, it owns a relationship with the clients and the customers, and it is running on extraordinary margins at the moment, even for a big tech company. Yeah, so just to explain what margin is, if you generate a certain amount of money in revenue, it's a question of how much money makes it through to profit after you've paid all of your costs. So if we look at Q4 for 2024, then their revenue, the total amount of money that they generated coming through the door, was $22 billion. Of that... $12 billion made it through to net profit. So that's a margin of 56%. So for every dollar of revenue, 56 cents made it through to the bottom line, which is incredible. You compare that with the other mega cap tech stocks and it's much higher. Yeah, around double in a lot of cases. So you're right. I think they are incredibly well positioned in terms of margins. And that is just stupendous. And you can see why they've been so successful. They've cornered the right market and they've managed to keep costs down. And now they can pretty much milk that space for as long as it takes for other companies to catch up with them. Yeah, what I think a lot of people don't understand about this development of AI is that there's kind of two components to it. So the phase we've been in has been where lots of companies have been buying these chips from NVIDIA to train their models because it takes a huge amount of compute power to just train an AI model and get it to the stage where you can ship it to customers. But we're now at the stage where a lot of models have been trained and customers are actually using them. You know, we're going on OpenAI or Microsoft's Copilot or whatever it might be. And we're, you know, saying, get me a picture of a cat wearing glasses. And it's, <laughs> it's, just, and it's using a lot of energy to give us a result. And in fact, the business has changed now. So NVIDIA now says that around 40% of its data center revenue now comes from AI inference, which is people actually using the models rather than training them. So this shift is underway. 
And a lot of people were concerned about this shift because they said, yes, NVIDIA has the market cornered when it comes to the high-end chips for training the models. But is it going to be so successful when it comes to actually monetizing the models? Because maybe these companies can use cheaper chips or their own chips when it comes to just everyday running of the AI models. And all of the tech giants are saying that they're developing their own chips. Amazon's doing it. Their chip is called Inferentia AI chip. Google's got their own, which is the Tensor Processing Units, TPUs. Microsoft's got its own, Meta has, and of course Tesla's working on them as well because it uses AI for self-driving cars. And currently most of those chips are done in partnership with Broadcom and Marvel, which are two silicon companies. But interestingly, I saw a report on Reuters that NVIDIA is actually now holding meetings, as you'd expect, with all those big tech companies saying, you know, partner with us if you want to make your own bespoke chips. It's concerned that there could be cannibalization here, I think. So I guess what they're hoping for is that they'll be the service provider in this space and that people will come to them to design the chips and also simply to just buy the service so you don't have to worry about the hardware. But the question is whether these companies are going to try and build it themselves. And for some companies, they've certainly got the budget to do that. So that, that is a worry, I think, from the point of view of NVIDIA. They can certainly throw money at the problem. But is money enough, right? You might be coming up against a patent wall where NVIDIA has got their first. And it's also just really at the cutting edge of technology, isn't it? And that's not guaranteed to pay off. Yeah, once it starts to become commoditized, you know, the service itself, I think that'll make it easier to reproduce stuff because it'll be pretty clear what people want, what the applications are, and you can design a service around it and also the hardware. But at the moment, like you say, it's pretty much in flux. We don't really know what the killer apps are going to be. So shall we just dig into the latest earnings from NVIDIA? Because they were well above expectations and the market rewarded them handsomely. So as you said, revenue for the fourth quarter was just over $22 billion, which was around $1.5 billion more than analysts expected. And that was up 265% on a year earlier. Now for a big company, that is incredible revenue growth. The word I'd use is unsustainable, but of course, I'm bitter. <laughs> right, yeah, but everything's unsustainable to begin with. You've got to have this stellar growth rate, and obviously it's going to tail off. But it doesn't mean you don't want it to grow fast at the beginning. Yes, of course, of course. But look, I think, I think the problem is, where do we go next with these chips? And where do we go next with NVIDIA's earnings? Are they going to carry on having this dominant position? That's the worry. Well, I listened to NVIDIA's earnings call like a nerd. And the NVIDIA CEO, Jensen Huang, he said that we started the AI journey with the hyperscale cloud providers and consumer internet companies. So there he's talking about, you know, Google, Meta, Amazon, etc. But he says, now every industry is coming on board from automotive to healthcare to financial services to industrial to telecom, media and entertainment. So what he's really saying is, we've only so far focused on a very small part of the market. You know, we've looked at the obvious companies, but now he's saying that basically every company is going to become an AI company to a greater or lesser extent. He's obviously talking his own book, but they are seeing it in the numbers. But one thing I found really intriguing was the idea of sovereign AI, which I'd never heard of before. Maybe that's wishful thinking as well. But the basic idea is if I read from the earnings call transcript, sovereign AI has to do with the fact that the language, the knowledge, the history and the culture of each region are different and they own their own data. They want to protect the data. They want to transform it themselves. 
We're seeing sovereign AI infrastructure being built in Japan, in Canada, in France, so many other regions. And so my expectation is that what's being experienced here in the United States will surely be replicated around the world. I believe that because I don't think France, for example, is going to want to cede its cultural ownership and integrity to the English language and to American tech companies. It's going to want its own AI models. AI with the French accent, yeah. I mean, I think every country wants to have its own AI that they can speak to in their own language. And that's what's incredible about it. It can do that. But trained on its own data is the key, isn't it? Yeah. And ownership of your own data is another important point here. If you're going to train the thing, you want to use your own proprietary databases or at least your own language databases. Because if we do start to turn increasingly to AI to provide us with the truth, the question is whose truth are we looking at, right? Is it China's truth? Is it France's? Is it Silicon Valley's? And in a sense, you do create these language models to parrot back what it's been trained on. So in that sense, you're right. You want it to speak not just with your own language, but with your own biases. That's what people really want. If you speak to the mirror on the wall, you don't want to hear that you're not the prettiest of them all. NVIDIA's earnings were the prettiest of them all, just to come back to that. <laughs> so you said, where's growth going to come from? So we've touched on a few areas there. And they've actually given guidance that for the next quarter, they expect revenue to go up again to $24 billion. And if you look at earnings, which is the profits, again, they beat expectations there. So they delivered almost $5 per share of earnings, which was around 34 cents higher than expected. But the thing that really makes them different is, as we said, those margins. So a gross margin of 76%, which was up two percentage points quarter on quarter, and an operating margin of 62%, up four percentage points quarter on quarter. So we talk about all these different margins, but basically a gross profit margin is after the cost of revenue, but before your operating expenses. And an operating profit, so your operating margin, is after you include those operating expenses such as R&D and sales and admin. And just to put that in context, any other company would give their right arm for those kind of numbers. It is just astonishing. Even Arm would give their right arm. Oh, very good. (laughs) (laughs) But that kind of growth comes with its own problems. And one of them is that when they launch a new product, I think they struggle to get all of the supply chains in place to provide the units that people are demanding. Today's podcast is sponsored by Free Trade, the UK commission-free investing platform. Free Trade are offering our podcast listeners a free bonus share worth between £10 and £100. All you need to do is join the platform and fund your account with at least £50. The free share will be added to your account within 7 to 10 days of funding. Here's what the Free Trade platform offers you over 6,100 UK, US, and European stocks, ETFs, and trusts at your fingertips, commission free trades to keep your profits, interest on uninvested cash recurring orders, and an easy-to-use app. Ready to claim your free share? Head over to freetrade.io slash pensioncraft to benefit from this offer. When you invest, your capital is at risk, the probability is weighted, so more expensive shares will be rarer, terms and conditions and other charges may apply. And just to explain what one of these chips looks like, you might just think it's like a chip that goes into your PC. It really isn't. So, for example, their NVIDIA Hopper GPU has 35,000 parts, according to Huang. It weighs 70 pounds. 
Now, I worked that out in terms of Teddy's weight, my dog, and it's 2.6 times Teddy's weight. And I struggled to lift him up. So that's a pretty heavy chip. Yeah, he's a pretty heavy dog. When I came over to your house the other day, he was really jumping up at me. <laughs> he was happy I arrived, wasn't he? He's always welcoming guests, yeah, but uh, a little bit too much joy and a little bit too much weight, unfortunately, for some people. But what you're saying here with the chips is that this isn't your standard laptop chip. Yeah, just imagine if that was in your laptop, it would damage you every time it sat on your lap. And if you look at the power consumption of one of their GPUs, so the H100, and assume it runs at about two thirds of its annual utilization rate, because you're not flatting out the chip at all times, then it uses about 700 watts. So let's assume that they sold 1.5 million H100 GPUs in 2023 and 2 million in 2024. That means there are going to be 3.5 million of these processors around deployed by the end of this year. That means in total, they're going to consume 13 terawatt hours of electricity every year. Put that in some context for me. Okay. So that's the annual power consumption of countries like Georgia, Lithuania, or Guatemala. Yeah, it's kind of less than I expected. I thought they'd be getting up to a Denmark level by now. (laughs) (laughs) But I take your point. And I did read that people like Sam Altman who's obviously running OpenAI, he's said that he doesn't think AI will really reach its true potential until we got more abundant power supply, like a nuclear fusion. And it's no accident that he's investing in nuclear fusion technology himself. And I didn't realise that they also work, this is NVIDIA, on optimising Ethernet. Because if you imagine all of the data being pumped into these GPUs, you have to pump it out again once you've got the results. So they also have systems which tweak the actual network to ensure that the data gets parceled out in the most efficient way possible. So it's really pushing the boundaries of what's possible in terms of moving data in and out of these chips. Yeah, that's really interesting because we sort of touched on, well, where's their growth going to come from? You can't keep growing at 200% plus per year indefinitely. And what they seem to be focusing on now It's kind of what you would expect. It's if you've got the chips, it's what's the mayo, what's the ketchup that you're selling with the chips. And one of those things is this proprietary networking technology you're talking about, where you can build a local network of AI GPUs, which work in harmony together and really improve the infrastructure around that. And the other thing is software. So their software offerings, which they sell alongside the chips, have now reached an annualized revenue run rate of a billion dollars. And Huang claims that NVIDIA's AI enterprise technology is like an operating system for AI. And he believes that every company that's deploying software in all the clouds and private clouds around the world will run on NVIDIA AI enterprise. So this is their big bet. So I guess it's a bit like what Apple's done, where you sell the hardware and then you sell all your services off the back of that hardware. And I guess diversifying at this point wouldn't be a bad idea either. So if they do switch the kind of service side of things rather than just the hardware, If someone else does step in, maybe they'll still have a slice of the action in the service space, even if they don't have all of the generation of revenue from the hardware side. Yeah, there are definitely risks there to be aware of. And the market has given them a lot of credit for potential future growth and priced that in today. So the reaction to these earnings was kind of nuts. So NVIDIA saw the largest single day gain in market cap in history, so added $277 billion to its market cap 
the day after the earnings report. To put that in some kind of context, one of the largest companies on the London Stock Exchange is Shell, the oil company, and its market cap is about $207 billion. AstraZeneca is about 204. So that's one of those companies, which was added in market cap in a single day. And to put it in even more specific context, it added the equivalent of one and a half Intels to its market cap in a day. And obviously Intel was the big prominent chip manufacturer for a long time. And they've just been left in the dust. They've really missed out on this AI revolution. But while we're making that comparison, the UK company, which designs chips, Arm Holdings, its market cap is $137 billion. So again, it's about two Arm Holdings. And if we just zoom out on the graph, if we wind back the clock to October 2022, which was the bottom of the bear market, you might remember, back then, NVIDIA had a market cap of less than $280 billion. Today, it's more or less reached $2 trillion. And that's in what, less than a year and a half? This is why Laura's looking so smug. Ah, yes, but I own VHVG, which is a developed market ETF. And in fact, 2.3% of that fund, the third largest holding, is now NVIDIA. So I kind of did buy that needle as well as a haystack. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Market cap weighting does a lot of the work for you. And you say it's the third largest holding. That's for a reason. NVIDIA has now eclipsed Amazon and Alphabet to become the third most valuable US company. It's only behind Microsoft and Apple now. Shooting up those league tables fast. You know what's weird, though, is that everyone talks about the Magnificent Seven and how that's dominated markets over the last couple of years. When you break it down between those seven companies, it's hard to make the case that it's the Magnificent Seven. It's really NVIDIA that stands out and Meta, but Meta was really a bounce back from an awful 2022, whereas NVIDIA's kind of been powering ahead. Yeah, you're right. It's done a lot of the heavy lifting. And this is always what happens, though. You always get the baton passed on from one company to another. And I'm sure it'll be someone else in five years' time. But still, yeah, all praise to NVIDIA for an incredible set of results, but also making stuff we want to use. Yeah. I think people forget that the FANG acronym, the N in that, was not NVIDIA. It was Netflix. (laughs) Things change quickly. I mean, inevitably, when you see a stock, go exponential like this, especially a big stock. Human nature, or at least a contrarian human like myself, says, well, this, surely this is a bubble and it's going to come back down to earth at some point. And when you look at the valuation, it's pricing in a hell of a lot of growth for a big company. But I guess that's kind of understandable when it's a new market, a massive market, and it's the monopoly player in there, then it has a lot of potential, genuinely has a lot of potential to keep growing. So what are the risks here to NVIDIA? I think for me, there's three broad categories of risk. The first is that AI is not going to be the size of market that everyone expects, and therefore NVIDIA is overvalued. The second risk is that it doesn't maintain its market share. So yes, AI is huge, but it becomes just one player amongst many. And the third risk is that its margins get compressed because AI becomes commoditized and anyone can kind of make these chips or maybe you don't need such specialized chips in the future. So it's kind of all three of those things have to work out for NVIDIA to be worth what the market thinks it's worth today. And the analogy that everyone's drawing between NVIDIA and previous companies was that it's the next Cisco. And I remember in 2000, Cisco was the picks and shovels bet at the time. 
So instead of buying an internet company, you'd buy the company which provided the infrastructure for the internet. And it soared in value, but it still hasn't really recovered from its crash that happened shortly afterwards when the dot-com bubble imploded. The FT had a nice graph, didn't they, where they overlaid Cisco's performance from 1996 to 2000, which was the ramp up of its bubble. In retrospect, it was a bubble. And NVIDIA's performance from 2020 to the present day. And those graphs match almost exactly. The question is, is NVIDIA going to have the big crash or is it going to deliver on its potential? And I think there is a hype bubble at the moment. So I think, you know, there is a euphoria element priced into NVIDIA's stock price. And the Dean of Valuation, Aswath Damodaran, has certainly valued NVIDIA as being overvalued right now by about over 50%. So I think really it's going to be tough to meet expectations for earnings growth in the future. And markets are brutal when it comes to disappointment. This time it really smashed the earnings expectations. Next time it's going to be harder and the time after that even harder still. People have said that for a while, though. It's been smashing expectations for a few years. But look, if you've got to do the high jump, you're going to beat records year after year, but eventually it's going to get tougher. And when the disappointment comes, it's going to come with a big crash, I suspect. It's going to be volatile, even if eventually it does realise this full potential. Surely competitors are going to come in and try and eat NVIDIA's lunch. This market is too big and too profitable for people not to try and get a piece of it. And we spoke about some of those competitors. So these are the other tech giants for starters. But also your standard semiconductor companies like AMD and Intel, they're obviously trying to get in on the action and they're in a much better space to do that because they already have the fabs in place in some cases or they've got the expertise to build such a system. The other big risk here is China. And it's two risks, really. The first one is that With the national security restrictions that the US has placed on China, NVIDIA has been stopped from selling most of its high-end chips into China, and its revenues from China have started to fall, which is very different from everywhere else in the world where it just, you know, can't meet market need fast enough. And the other risk is the one you said earlier, that it's reliant on manufacturers for its chips, which are often based in Taiwan. And it's not the only company to face that kind of geopolitical China risk, but it is one of the most exposed, I would have thought. It was interesting on the earnings call, Huang did mention the restrictions in response to a question from one of the analysts. And apparently the US government is being a bit pragmatic about it. It hasn't been a blanket ban. It's just certain chips which they're not allowed to send there. It wants to sell the generation before's chips to China, so it always stays one step ahead. He says the US government would like to see us be as successful in China as possible but limit the latest capabilities of NVIDIA's accelerated computing and AI to the Chinese market. So, of course, they had to pause when the new restrictions came out. I think you basically have to assume their China sales will flatline, even if the rest of the world is providing growth for them. Obviously, China will be trying to develop its own high-end chips here. Whether it can get there or not, we shall see. They've certainly been lagging so far in making these ultra-fast ships. I mean, it's so hard to catch up in short order. This is really at the cutting edge of human technological capabilities right now. And I guess that's the point, isn't it? Because this is the cutting edge, we can't really foresee with much accuracy where the AI market's going to go. In a way, similar to how when the internet came along, we didn't know it was going to give birth to social media and internet streaming and all these other services that have been 
piled on top of the internet architecture. And I guess it's similar with AI. If you speak to the proponents of it, they will argue that AI is going to be bigger than the internet, a more impactful technology. What do you think about that? Well, I hate to say this, but usually what drives innovation for things like the internet, but also for computing, has been porn. You know, that's, that's been such, such a big driver of increasing bandwidth, for example. I remember that, you know, that was one of the reasons why people demanded higher bandwidth. And AI porn, obviously, that's going to be a big industry. So who knows, you know, what it's going to be that drives the next stage of development. What do you think, though? Is AI porn really <laughs> at the quality needed yet, Roman? <laughs> I'm not an expert, I have to say. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> but it is weird, you're right. Like, even go back to the printing press, I think. Smut drove a lot of the development. That's right. Smut and the Bible. <laughs> but in terms of applications, I think it's going to be difficult to find an aspect of life where there isn't some kind of application. You know, whether it's drug design, scheduling, you know, just having someone to help you manage your calendar, teaching, innovation in science, all of these ideas, you know, even mathematics, perhaps eventually will be augmented in some way by working with AI. It won't necessarily do everything for us, but I think it'll be something which expands our own capabilities. Yeah, people always worry, is the AI going to take my job? And the take on that that always sticks with me is I heard it said that it won't be AI that takes your job. It'll be someone that knows how to use AI. They'll take your job. Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. And maybe this is the thing that people have been talking about to increase productivity. Because we had computers that came along. Everyone said that it was going to increase human productivity, but it really didn't. No, we wasted all our time looking at cat GIFs. Well, just sitting in front of a computer 12 hours a day is not going to make you more productive. Whereas for AI, I think there really is an opportunity to make us more productive because a lot of the tedious stuff that we're not very good at as humans, which is integrating large bodies of information, summarising them. You're really good at that. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of thing, and also the synthesis, you know, the, the kind of putting together of the information and researching it is very time consuming. So if you can offload that and just concentrate on the creative bits, then, you know, maybe we will be more productive in future. It's so weird you say that, though, because to me, so far, AI has kind of delivered the opposite of that. So I would hope that it would allow creatives to offload their tedious tasks. But what it's actually done so far is allow tedious people to offload their creative tasks and create loads of annoying memes really quickly. Oh, that is funny. Yeah, for example, it can create music, it can create art, and uh, people have said it's plagiarism because it's been fed by the artistic creations of other people. So in a sense, it's stealing their ideas. Yeah, it's also interesting. There's like a whole realm of law and copyright, which is just going to have to evolve and really think through how does it work with a world where we've got agents that aren't human. But I think there will be specialised applications where you train it on a specific task, and it's just very, very, very good at that task. We've seen it already for things like chess computers in the past, where you tweak a system. You can't just throw a generalised AI at chess and hope it does really well. Yeah, at the moment, these large language models are kind of like dick athletes. They're like pretty good at a lot of stuff. but 
if you look at a decathlete, it's going to lose to the specialist runners and jumpers and whatever in every single event. And I think that's the way AI will go. Now, some people have said that investment is going to be one of the applications. So you just train an AI to look for patterns in macro, to train it to look for patterns in markets. And it's going to be better than humans at doing that. So I suspect that many people in the fund management industry are actually quite worried about that because you could probably do it more cheaply than you could by paying a human or his team of analysts or his team of investment bankers to do the same thing. I mean, I think that's the easiest AI problem to solve because you'll just say, where should I invest my money? I'll say, a passive index fund. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a surprising thing. I think many people have tried to look at it statistically. And I think to beat markets is very difficult. And I suspect many AIs would come up with that solution. And also, this technology will become widespread and there'll be no edge. Everyone will have it. As always, yeah. Now, we recently had a thread on our chat application Slack where someone said, what's the best AI tool to use for investing? And someone typed this into ChatGPT, which I absolutely loved. What do you think of Roman and Pensioncraft? And ChatGPT replied, Roman and Pensioncraft are well-regarded sources for financial education and advice. Roman provides valuable insights through his content, and Pensioncraft offers informative resources on retirement planning and investment strategies. All of that's fine, except you don't (laughs) offer advice, as you always say. (laughs) But if you want to become part of our community and learn from all of us, including me, then just go to pensioncraft.com to find out more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is the rule of 40? Now, you probably remember in the dot-com bubble that there were lots of companies burning cash. And the question is always, is this company going to survive? And of course, the reason why you're burning cash is to grow your revenue. So yes, burning through your cash is acceptable, it turns out, using this rule of thumb, which is the rule of 40. So the trade-off here, of course, is between growth of revenue and profitability. So the more profitable you are, the less growth you need in order to break even. And conversely, if you're growing really, really fast, you're willing to sacrifice a lot of short-term losses. So what actually is the rule of 40 then? What's the 40? So the rule of 40 states that a software company's combined revenue growth rate and profit margin should be greater than or equal to 40%. So you take the revenue growth rate, you add the profit margin, and it should be more than 0.4. Right. So that implies that if the growth rate's really high, we can have a lower profit margin or a negative profit margin. And if the growth rate is disappointing, well, now we need to be profitable. So let's say you've got a stupendous revenue growth rate of 50% year on year. That means that you can have a margin of minus 10% or better and still be in the game. Yeah, and if you're growing really, really, really fast at 100% year-on-year revenue growth, then you could have a minus 60% profit margin and still be hitting the rule of 40, and investors would probably be happy to give you capital. Now, I think this is a better measure than something like total addressable market, which people usually use to justify crazy valuations, because at least it does rely on profitability calculations. So total addressable market, which is often in favour in those euphoric periods is basically saying when this market reaches maturity and everyone in the world is willing to buy this product, (laughs) how big is it going to be? Yeah. And I think that's just unreasonable because you're not going to get that kind of market share reasonably within the lifetime of a company that's burning cash. 
So this isn't without risk. You could pass this criterion for the rule of 40. It really just screens out the no-hopers, I think, when capital's just freely available and VCs are just throwing money at companies. So you can discriminate the better companies from the worst companies. And what you see is that when interest rates are low and there's capital sloshing about everywhere, is that companies that fail the rule of 40 don't really struggle to raise capital, but maybe they don't survive when capital becomes more expensive. But as always with these rules of thumb, it's something which is just to help. You should use other forms of information and realise that these are very risky companies. It might not pan out at all, even if it satisfies this rule. And I think it's specific to software as a service companies because they can eventually achieve a really, really high margin, usually. And also grow very rapidly. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.